Hey everybody, it's good to see y'all here this evening. Oh, we got a, a nice little crowd. I think Josh told me that uh, I needed to move the cross back. And now I don't want to, certainly don't want to uh, uh, get in the way of the cross. Uh, not that I could. I think that might be the definition of me taking up my cross. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, it's good to be here this evening. It's good to have the opportunity to share with you. Uh, it's been a long time since I uh, stood here to give a lesson, and uh, so I'm going to be pretty rusty. Um, and that's by design. I don't. I, I feel like uh, I'm. I'm uh, this is not really my place uh, in our church family so much anymore. So anyway, but uh, be that as it may, I'm going to do the best I can tonight. Um, how many of y'all listened to uh, Josh online last night? Okay. Then I remember, I think I heard something about Josh saying that there was going to be a car auction on Sunday. Did, did y'all hear that? Josh, I, I think I heard that, something about a car being auctioned on ch at church Sunday. Well, anyway, I got to be here for that. You know, uh, you know that. Uh, you know, we we talked about you know drawing people to our church and things like that, and Josh used that uh, that kind of narrative there about uh, auctioning off a, a car. I said, well, man, I got to be here Sunday then, you know. But anyway, uh, uh, it's good for us to be here once again, and uh, I'm going to talk to you. You know, uh, on Sunday, uh, Terry uh, spoke to us, and he talked about the. Uh, triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. And, of course, that was a, that was a high time uh, in Jesus' ministry. And, you know, all the crowds, they were uh, excited and enthused about seeing uh, the one they thought might be their Messiah, might be their Christ, might be their deliverer, uh, making a triumphal entry into the uh, city of Jerusalem. So that was a big time for, uh, for, for Jesus, really. And, but it starts to go, kind of go uh, downhill from there because you remember uh, Luke talked to us on Monday about how that Jesus came in that next day and he cleansed the temple. He uh, comes in and he overturns the tables and he drives out the money changers and things of that nature. And uh, it was really just... Uh, uh, things, you know, start to kind of really go downhill, if you will, uh, from that triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And then, of course, uh, on last night, uh, Josh talked to us about uh, the challenge to Jesus' authority, and he talked to us about some of those parables. You know, the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him about, what authority do you do those things that you're doing? And they might have had direct reference to the uh, uh, the time that he went into the temple and overturning the tables and things of that nature. But it may have also talked about just some of the things that he was doing in general during the course of his ministry. And they just said, well, who gave you this authority? Where do you get your authority from? And tonight, I'm going to kind of continue uh, really with this question, if you will, uh, of Jesus's authority, really, uh, because really, that's kind of what takes place. I'm going to look at the latter half of Matthew, the 22nd chapter, in particular, verses 15, all the way to the end. And the challenge comes in a series of questions that they're going to be throwing uh, at Jesus. Now, uh, Jason read uh, our text earlier. Well, this is not actually our text, but he read from uh, John chapter 12, 45 through 33. Now, that reading basically was after uh, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And, of course, you know, 
that had to be an exciting time. Uh, after raising Lazarus, uh, Jesus' popularity uh, really among the people is really just soaring. It's, it's just really up there after they see this great miracle after he brings Lazarus back from the dead. Uh, people are now believing on him. They're desiring to follow him and, and all of these types of things because of this great miracle that he's performed. But, of course, the religious leaders who are, we know, to be Jesus' detractors throughout the course of his ministry, we're talking about the uh, scribes and Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all of these, they begin to see Jesus as even more of a threat uh, to their own leadership and really also to the Jewish nation as well. They believe that uh, Jesus is going to become somewhat of a, a, a revolutionary and that the Roman government is just going to come in and just really not only silence him, but really punish the Jewish nation as well because of the things that Jesus is doing. And so they've determined that there's nothing left to do but to put Jesus to death. And that's what we saw in the last couple of verses of John, the 12th chapter. They've determined that this Jesus has got to go, he's got to die, that's something that's got to take place. But you know, it's not going to be that easy uh, because the masses, they love Jesus now. Once again, he's, he's wildly popular with everybody now. And if they just arrest him without cause, then the people are likely going to turn on them and uh, really just throw a riot because of them arresting Jesus, who is beloved for them at this point in time. And so what we see now in this 22nd chapter, in these last few verses of Matthew 22, is what we often see in the political world a lot of times. Uh, the religious leaders are beginning to launch a, a, a smear campaign against Jesus. That's really what they want to do by asking him these questions. Uh, if they can get him to say something that'll make him look bad, something that's going to make him incriminate himself, or something to make the people turn on him, then it would be much easier for them to arrest him and, uh, and, and do what they want to do as far as putting him to death. And so what happens in these last few verses of Matthew 22 is the religious leaders put Jesus kind of on the hot seat, so to speak, by asking him some questions that are designed to make Jesus incriminate himself. He'll say something that will either make the people say, you know what, you know, I don't know about this guy. He may not really be the, the Messiah that we're looking for. Or, on the other hand, maybe he'll say something that'll make Rome come after him and uh, they'll arrest him and do the work for the religious leaders. Now, what's interesting about this is that all of Jesus' detractors kind of join forces and launch a combined attack against Jesus. Uh, you've got the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, all of these working together to bring Jesus down. Now, normally, these groups really didn't see eye to eye on much of anything, uh, but they do agree that Jesus needed to be silenced. And so they're going to work together and come at him with these questions that are designed really to make him look kind of, you know, really ignorant, not knowing what he's talking about, and get the people to kind of back off his, uh, their, his popularity. So the first question is in verses 17 through 21. Chapter 22, verses 17 through 21. Uh, the, the Pharisees or some of, their, uh, some of their disciples come to Jesus along with some of the Herodians. And they say, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. You know, um, back before I retired, when I was working as an uh, uh, aircraft mechanic for American, uh, you know, many of my coworkers bought very expensive tools, uh, you know, uh, Snap-on and, and Mac and Matco, some of the most uh, expensive tools there were out there. You know, now, I, that wasn't me. I, I, I always said that I was a shade tree mechanic, so, you know, my bag had some of everything in it, you know, Craftsman and, and right on down the line, Proto and some of, those, uh, some of those other brands. But anyway, these guys had really, really nice tools, and when they opened up their toolbox, it almost looked like a treasure chest because the tools were so nice and clean and shiny and laid out so perfectly. Well, oftentimes what those guys would do is they would get a, 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 a what they call a vibrapine, and they would etch their name into their wrenches or screwdrivers or whatever the case may be so that if they lost their tool, if they left it on the airplane or left it out on the bench somewhere, uh, everybody would know whose it was, who it belonged to, and uh, thereby, and the idea being that they should return it. Well, basically, Jesus says that since the tax coin, the denarius, since it has Caesar's likeness on it and his inscription on it, then Caesar has a rightful claim to those coins, to that money. Uh, in other words, we could say that it's kind of a veiled way of Jesus saying it's only right to pay taxes to support earthly governments, to support Rome or whatever the government in charge is. But that wasn't really the thing that he was after. Of course, the question was loaded. The Pharisees knew that the expectation of the Jewish Messiah, the ones that the Jews expected, was that he would overthrow the Roman government and the Jews would no longer have to pay them taxes. But if Jesus just came right out and said, well, no, don't pay those Roman pagans another cent, then, of course, he could have been arrested by the Romans for sedition. So, obviously, he wasn't going to say that. And that really wasn't what he was after anyway. So he simply said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render to God those things that belong to God. So just as sure as the earthly governments are right in expecting its citizens to render taxes to support the government for social causes or whatever the case may be, citizens of God's kingdom are expected to render to God the glory, the honor, the praise, and the obedience that God is due as members and citizens of his kingdom. Render to Caesar those things that belong to Caesar, but render to God those things that belong to God. The next question, or the next test, is going to come from the Sadducees. Now, uh, the Sadducees um, is kind of a funny group, and I've may not be totally accurate on this, but, you know, basically the Sadducees only uh, accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, you know, the Pentateuch or the law uh, as being authoritative. Uh, they didn't really accept the, the prophets or the writings or the historical books of the Old Testament as they should, or they really just didn't give them the same weight as they did the uh, Pentateuch or the first five books of the Old Testament. 
And because of this, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you see, because uh, the law didn't really say a whole lot about the resurrection. And so, you know, since that was their Bible, and it really didn't say a lot about the resurrection, the Sadducees really didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so they asked this question because not only would their question make Jesus look bad, but it would also go a long way towards showing the Pharisees and everyone else that there is no resurrection of the dead as they believed. So it really had kind of two points to it. So, beginning in verse 23, the Bible says the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Um, you know, and I suppose, you know, for us, definitely, that sounds like just a wild question, and it really was. It really was designed, once again, really just to make Jesus look bad. You know, I think I'm looking about this question, you know, back in the 50s, there was this, uh, this old movie, uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Well, I think this is the prequel, uh, One Bride for Seven Brothers. So it was kind of based on, based on this, you know. But anyway, uh, so he goes on and answers. He, but Jesus answers, they answered them, you are wrong because you know not neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus answered their question or began answering their question by quoting Exodus chapter 3 uh, in verse 6 where God said to Moses uh, that I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. Those were patriarchs who had been physically dead for hundreds of years when God spoke to Moses, yet God declared that he was still their God that he is a God of the living, that these men, these patriarchs, were yet alive somewhere with God. But Jesus not only accused the Sadducees of not knowing the Scriptures, not knowing the very Scriptures that they embraced, not embracing Exodus chapter 3, where, uh, where Jesus quoted from, well, not only that, they failed to recognize the power of God Jesus says. In other words, the ability of God to raise the dead, to give them a new body, to give them a new existence, and to give them new relationships. They failed to recognize any of that. And you know, there's a lot that I don't know about the resurrection of the dead, a lot of things that I don't really understand. Uh, even the early Christians had questions and various theories about the resurrection of the dead and, and how that was going to all take place and how all that was going to wash out. You know, we've been uh, looking at that in our Bible study on Tuesday in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And even the Corinthians, they had questions about the resurrection and how all that was going to look and things like that. 
I've been asked on more than one occasion, in the resurrection, will we still know each other? Uh, what about our earthly relationships? Will I still know my wife or my children or my good friends and things like that? I don't know the answer to all of that, but I do know that God is powerful. And not only is he powerful, he loves us dearly. And I'm confident that even though Martha and I may not be married in the resurrection, and even though I may not still be the father of my children in the resurrection, I am confident that God is able to give us relationships that are far better than anything that we've experienced on this side of eternity. That is the power of the God we serve. He loves us. He cares about us. And he's not wanting to make eternity something that we're going to dread, but something that we'll long for and look forward to. I've been with Martha for over 41, year, for over 41 years now. And, you know, uh, I feel like it's really gone by pretty fast. Where has that time gone? We've had our highs and lows and our ups and downs. But, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, you know what? God's going to give us uh, maybe a different type of relationship. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but if God, God gives it to us, it's going to be good. And I'm thanking for that. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21, Paul at the end of his prayer, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is able to do far more abundantly than anything we ask and think, and he's going to do so even in the resurrection as well. The final test question is found in verses 35 through verse 40, excuse me. And uh, it says, in one of them, a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You know, even though this might seem like a sincere question about the law, you know, why, why, why wouldn't that be sincere? Why wouldn't he want to know what was the most important question in the law? We must remember that it's being asked by a lawyer. And when lawyers ask a question, there's almost, almost always a hidden agenda. If he gets this one wrong, then surely the people will see him as a fraud. If he doesn't know how to answer this right, how can this guy be our Messiah? Well, fundamental to every faithful Jew was the great Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. All good Jews would understand that and know that that was the great commandment of the law. And Jesus answered, the second is likened to it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. You know, when Jesus answered that question, nobody could question or challenge his answer. Now, after that, having answered all of their questions brilliantly, Jesus finally poses a question to them. 
Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They had thrown all of these questions at Jesus. Jesus answered all of their questions brilliantly. And now he asked them one question, and he stumps them with one question. They couldn't answer him a word. As a matter of fact, at the end of that, they said nobody dared ask him anything else. You know, isn't that something? You know, I can remember back in the day of the old, uh, the old Church of Christ uh, uh, debates, you know, and uh, I, I wasn't there, but I only heard about it, that one guy was debating another guy on a uh, religious issue. I'm not even going to mention the issue now because, you know, now I'd, I'd say, well, why even waste our time debating that? But anyway, after the debate, or once the debate was heavy into it and everything, uh, one guy basically pretty much like gave up the argument. I give up. I can't answer anymore. I, I can't answer your questions anymore. Everything you said sounds right, and I just can't, I can't answer you anymore. Well, that's kind of what takes place here. You know, they've asked Jesus these questions. They couldn't stump him, and he asked them one question, and they couldn't answer and from that point on, they said, we better not ask this guy any more questions. We're going to give up the issue. We're going to give up the debate. It's all over. By the way, Jesus' question had really a simple answer. I guess it's simple now because here we are 2,000 years later, and we've had a chance to, to examine it and write commentaries about it and all of those things. But the answer being very simply that Jesus was both the, the Messiah or the Christ would be both. It's a both-and answer. He would be both uh, David's son by lineage, and he would be his Lord or his master because he is the Christ. David looked to a Messiah just like the rest of the Israelites did. Well, just finishing up here, what can we take from all of this? How, what kind of lesson is there here for us in all of this? I mean, there are certainly some things in all of those questions and answers that, that we can draw from, but just the event itself, this questioning of Jesus, what can we draw from all of that? Well, things haven't changed much since Jesus encountered the religious leaders back then. Jesus still has his detractors even today, skeptics, those attempting to pose hard questions concerning Jesus and his ministry and things like that, the things that he taught and so forth. Questions that sometimes leave us scratching our head and sometimes they can even put our own faith uh, in question, if you will. Why does Jesus allow those innocent women and children in Ukraine to suffer? If Jesus loves us so much, then why does he allow poverty or br brutal crime and social injustice and things like that. Questions like that we hear all the time, often from skeptics who really don't want to believe that Jesus is who he proclaimed to be. 
Sometimes these questions are hard. But I believe that in every question, in every doubt, in every fear that we have, we need only do one thing, and that's focus on the cross. Focus on the cross. Know that Jesus, his love for us was such that he was willing to die for us. That he was willing to go to a sinner's cross and die for me. Even though I don't deserve it, I didn't deserve it, he did it just the same because of his love for me. And I may not have the answer to every hard question there is, but I just know that Jesus loves me and my God loves me and he's in the process of making all things right through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's going to happen and I'm assured of that. Of that. Finally, in Romans 8, 37 through 39, Paul said, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And no, not even the hard questions that we can't always answer those won't separate us from him either. The lesson is yours. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for our time together this evening. Heavenly Father, for allowing us, dear God, to just take this time, dear Father, to remember uh, the Holy Week and the things that Jesus went through on his journey to the cross. Heavenly Father, we just pray, dear God, that uh, our, your love for us, dear God, would shine through in the cross that Jesus gave himself for us, dear Lord. And even though we're not able to answer every question, every challenge, may our faith be established in your love for us. May we remember that Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for a sinful world. Thank you, Father, for your love for us and for all that you do for us, Father. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.